You're listening to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust, exploring essential knowledge and strategic practice. Hello there. Welcome to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. Today, we're looking at the relationship between responsibility, vulnerability and regulation. Now, in the Devil's Dictionary of 1911, the satirical writer Ambrose Bierce defined responsibility as a detachable burden easily shifted to the shoulders of God, fate, fortune, luck or one's neighbour. Arguably, unfortunately, things have moved on since these times, including safeguards within the financial services sector. And while some may raise an amused eyebrow at a comparison between the Devil's Dictionary and the Financial Conduct Authority's handbook, and its overarching regulatory principles, these publications clearly state that consumers should take responsibility for their decisions and firms must recognise the interests of their consumers and treat them fairly. On the face of it, this appears to strike a helpful balance between the basic responsibilities of consumer and firm. However, as with many things, this balance may only work on paper because, in real life, there'll be a range of circumstances where consumers cannot take responsibility for their decisions or financial situation and where they may be potentially vulnerable to harm, detriment or loss of either a financial or non-financial nature. In the course of business, firms will sometimes fail to identify, acknowledge or take responsibility for such consumers, resulting in these individuals moving from being vulnerable to harm to actually experiencing harm. And while all the time this is set against an evolving public debate, which uh, involves rising public expectations about the levels of support that firms should be providing to consumers in vulnerable situations, and a just emerging regulatory debate about explicitly defining the minimum levels of action and support that firms should provide, either in regulation or law. So in this podcast, we ask what level of responsibility do firms and consumers have when it comes to vulnerability? What should we expect as a minimum from firms in terms of identification and support? And is this responsibility being met by firms across the sector? Is it unrealistic, unsustainable, or just part of everyday business? And when it comes to consumers, is it unreasonable to expect a consumer to disclose a vulnerable situation to a firm, rather than requiring a firm to identify this? Or for consumers to not cry invasion of privacy if a bank monitors their accounts for bipolar spending, problem gambling behaviours, or just future financial difficulty? To help us deal with the devil in the detail, we're joined by three people known for their practical impact in the financial services sector and also their loathe of starting any sentence with, well, it all depends on the situation. Jim Fernley, who's a senior policy advisor for financial services at Macmillan Cancer Support, with Macmillan running their Banking on Change campaign since 2017 to introduce a legal duty of care to all customers, including those with cancer. Hello. Martin King, who's head of customer vulnerability at Lloyd's Banking Group, with 22 million customers and over 70,000 staff in the UK. Lloyd's are the largest provider of basic bank accounts. Hello. And Helen Undy, Director of the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, formed in 2016 by Martin Lewis and Polly McKenzie, with the aim of breaking the link between financial difficulty and mental health. And before this, Helen worked in policy at one of the largest mental health charities in the UK, Mind. Hello. Okay, so let's start with some fundamentals. Martin, um... You were present at the launch of the original FCA paper on vulnerability way back in 2015, and you oversee customer vulnerability strategy at Lloyd's. So looking back at that definition, can you just briefly remind us what the FCA currently say about vulnerability? And can you tell us a little bit about the sort of additional care and responsibility you believe firms should be providing to customers in vulnerable situations? 
So when I think back to uh, the FCA's definition, February 2015, feels like it was uh, only yesterday, um, they talk a lot about personal circumstances. I think that's the key part. So about, about the human, about the individual themselves, the level of detriment that potentially is going to be higher. So what's the potential for detriment? And then finally, the most important part is the level of care from firms. So bring those three parts together. Uh, that's really started to challenge us, not just to think in a just detriment or just our level of care or just about the person, but it's all three must be viewed at the same time. And I think that's really started to think about how we as a firm kind of think about the materiality of, of each of those elements as well. So, so as, as you kind of see the detriment go up, but the personal circumstances being maybe simpler or more complex, you start to really focus in on what should we do. And as a firm, we've, we've grappled with that over the last three years. And what, what type of additional care, though? Can you give us some examples of some of the things that Lloyd's um, can, can and can't do? Oh, they're, they're varied and wide. They, they run from the very simple, from, for example, providing Braille statements and, and allow an accessibility for people that may have no other circumstances that, that impinge on their ability to deal with their finances other part than they are visually impaired all the way through to specialist support teams that are there to provide not only just the the empathy and understanding but also specific exceptions and policies around things such as fees and charges or uh, how we deal with their forbearance that's great jim um from the mcmillan cancer support perspective you, you've heard what martin has to say there to what extent are firms across the financial services sector currently showing such care to consumers with cancer. Can you give us some examples? I think the overall picture is quite variable. And with that being said, um, Macmillan's been working with the banking industry now for the last three years, uh, including indeed with Lloyd's. Um, we set up two specialist support projects, um, one with Nationwide and then subsequently one with Lloyd's. And with that being over-prescriptive, I think the approaches which we adopted in those, those pilots are indicative of what we would describe as a duty of care, which is essentially having frontline staff who, who understand the experiences and the needs of people with cancer, being able to signpost those people onto specialist teams within the organisation who can go into the issues more deeply. And the evaluation that we've done, the independent evaluation which we've commissioned on those projects, has really demonstrated how, how effective that, that approach is, putting the customer front and centre. Fantastic. We'll come back to that and we'll come back to the um, duty of care in a moment as well. Helen, uh, the examples that Jim gave there in relation to um, to cancer, are they similar or are they different from the ones that you'd identify in relation to consumers with mental health problems? It's interesting. I think specialist support teams and specially trained uh, advisors, whether that's in a vulnerable customer team or broader frontline advisors, will always be part of the solution. But I think it can only be one part of the solution for customers with mental health problems, as well as for customers with other kind of multiple and complex needs. Because as you alluded to in your introduction, that relies on the firm knowing about the customer's needs in order to be able to give them access to specialist support. And there are a particular set of barriers for customers who have needs that are either stigmatised, so where there might be some shame or embarrassment about talking about those needs, or where those needs themselves make it harder to come forward and have a conversation. So if you struggle to use the telephone because of your mental health, then actually getting access to a vulnerable customer team can be really tricky. So that's where we get into the space of really talking about the design of inclusive products and services that can help customers whether or not you know about their additional needs and also look at the responsibility of firms themselves to proactively go out and identify customers who might need support. So these are responsibilities, Helen, that uh, firms need to show even if a consumer doesn't disclose or isn't even aware of their condition. Yes, and that's challenging because 
you know, banks have a commercial responsibility to their shareholders. And there are, as the FCA's um, Financial Live study showed, about half of us are likely to experience some kind of vulnerability. And when we're thinking particularly about, so take customers who are in arrears, for people in financial difficulty, half of that group will have mental health problems. So we're not talking about a small segment of customers. So obviously, we need to balance what's proportionate and what's feasible for firms with what's necessary for customers. And I think it's about being quite creative about how we work together without relying on that sort of bottleneck of disclosure to be the only way in which we can provide help. That's great. We'll come back to accessibility in the standards because I know Money and Mental Health are doing some work on that in a moment. But Martin, just to kind of um, get some further sense of the challenge and the scale from a firm's perspective, do you know how many of your 22 million customers at Lloyd's might be expected to be in a vulnerable situation at any one time? That's an incredibly difficult question. I think if we come back to the financial life survey data at 50%, uh, that immediately says it's 11 to 12 million. But that's, that's relying on them actually thinking about, they, they may well be vulnerable in their, their lives, but it's their interaction with the organisation as well. And we, we could guess, we could uh, look at people on, on particularly limited incomes or uh, going through circumstances. There are things that we can't predict. So bereavements, they will they will happen without any data, any indication. And we, we um, have around about 20,000 bereavements registered with us each month, each one unexpected for us as a bank compared to the next one. Um, illnesses, are, are again, but there are certain indicators that uh, are always going to represent, a, an, a, uh, I guess, a propensity to being vulnerable. But it comes back to vulnerable to what and that detriment point and our, our level of care. So an example would be because somebody has a, a particular type of income, does that limit their ability to, to use an ATM? Does it does it limit their ability to use a debit card, manage their finances? But then we start to go more, much more complex into making decisions about borrowing money, uh, about dealing with financial difficulties. And then again, the the uh, the interaction is always going to lead up. So I think it, it is in per certain certain parts of how we interact with customers are going to need uh, consideration to their vulnerability. It can't just be looked at in an isolation. Um, otherwise, you'll put too many controls and too many things in place for people to do their their day to day finances. So we, we've said at the start about there being a, a need for additional care. Uh, we've heard from Jim about maybe this uh, extending to a duty of care. We've heard a bit about minimum standards and looking out for people who both disclose and don't disclose. Now, this is a huge number of customers and a huge number of issues. So with responsibility comes limits. What are the limits for commercial firms in regard to vulnerability? Wide, varied and complex. Um, but if I think about generally how the, the financial services industry has evolved in the last five to ten years, we've a lot of discussion around conduct risk and delivering fair outcomes for large swathes of the UK. Um, I think the vulnerability debate is actually taking it down from delivering it for 95, 96, 97, 98% to 100%. But there are those that delivering a fair outcome for is is more difficult because they have personal circumstances, but they because they have those things going on with their lives that are unpredictable, sometimes difficult to find, and that's the challenge for us as a firm to find that out, to understand that, and then either to predict it happening, uh, but more importantly, to then react appropriately and fairly. Helen and Jim, do, do you accept there are material limits to the responsibility that? firms can carry in relation to customers in vulnerable situations? I'm wondering whether the obverse of that question is, you know, is there a latent risk or concern about 
consumers actively being irresponsible. And certainly from our experience, we run a financial guidance service, which gives advice to people with cancer across the range of financial products. I don't think we've come across a single case where we could wholeheartedly say this person has behaved irresponsibly. So slightly turning the question on its head, but um, it's far more likely that people will be approaching their banks at an early stage and acting with a high degree of responsibility. And there's one uh, case study we put in a report we published last year about a woman who was so concerned about the impact of her son's cancer diagnosis on his credit record that she actually moved into his home in order to be in a position to be able to service his, his commitments. So taking responsibility in that sense, Helen, I mean, material limits to responsibility. You know, there's multiple charities, each, you know, shouting for their mm-hmm. constituency. There's Martin at Lloyd's. I mean, are there limits to what he can do and what Lloyd's can do? I think sometimes there are limits to the ways in which firms can react to act on those responsibilities. So that doesn't necessarily limit their responsibility, but it means that the way in which they might meet that could be limited by material limitations, it could be limited by resources and time. And there is a balancing act between the role of regulation, the role of social policy and the role of individual firms within that. There will be some customers with needs that are complex and difficult to meet, where there is a role for social policy. And we need to think about If we're talking about credit and lending, for example, there are some people whose material need is not best met through credit and actually might be better met through a benefit system or through a system like the social fund where people can be given access to money that is not through a competitive market because they not only can't afford to pay the interest but actually possibly can't afford to pay the capital either. Mm. Um, But that doesn't mean, I think, that we need to be unpicking which customers are deserving of support from firms. Instead, we need to be thinking about how can firms most realistically meet the needs of those customers. And for me, so there's how you identify that group of customers, um, but there's also what you can do for the people So it's not only about the people that you will never be able to identify, but actually taking a sort of universal design approach and thinking about shifting products and services on a more wholesale way um, actually is, for many firms, a more cost-effective way of doing things and reduces the responsibility on individual members of a banking staff team to be an expert in every single condition that is coming up because we can't expect a customer in a call centre to necessarily be able to identify the cause of an individual customer's extra needs. What we need them to be able to do is respond to those needs in a way that allows that customer to access a service. So there are limits not just materially, but also in terms of the knowledge uh, that staff have, the training, even the systems that underpin so the banking structure of, of that firm. And we need to then think about those common touch points, what you refer to as universal design. Exactly. So universal design is basically about designing something around the people with the greatest needs. So the you know the classic example that's used is the drop curve on the curb, sorry, on the pavement. So you drop your curb so that people in a wheelchair can get access onto the pavement. But actually that's also useful for everyone using a pushchair, everyone pulling a suitcase. And so it's thinking about what are the similar adjustments that we could make within the banking system that might make it more accessible and might give better outcomes to customers who have additional needs, but that are actually going to be beneficial for everybody. And where in order to give access to that adjustment, you don't need somebody to raise their hand and say, actually, I've got 
um, I've got a phobia or I have anxiety that means I find it very difficult to use the telephone, what you need to do is offer web chat so that somebody doesn't have to put their hand up and say that to access your service. They can do it just as somebody who has no additional need but who just prefers web chat. Well, we'll test the limits of universal design in a moment mm. when we talk about some of the specificities. But what's been really interesting so far is I think the responsibilities of a consumer in a vulnerable situation have only just gently been touched on by Jim a moment ago. Do, do we not think that consumers in a vulnerable situation have some responsibility or are they kind of um, uh, abdicate that responsibility or that is removed from them? I'm thinking of things about if you did know disclosure, if you were asked to provide medical evidence, would you be able to provide it? Would you mind your bank uh, account being monitored if you said you had problem gambling or had bipolar disorder? Is there res any responsibility on the part of consumers when they're in vulnerable situations? I, I think the, the point around um, general responsibility and all the elements you talked through there, so disclosure, uh, how you interact with the bank, the, I think we, as, as, a, as an industry, need to talk a lot about trust and actually people thinking that they can come and approach us to do that, but also know that they can. So if we think about banking and financial services 30, 40 years ago, that it, it's moved along phenomenally. We're now going through a, a very much a digital age. So does that encourage, discourage, does it help people interact with us? Um, I think we have a, a, a kind of a, a role to play in making it easier to do all the things you've just made, made listed out there. Um, easy to say very very difficult to do because i think we are again we have to turn a, a a cultural dial both with our org with our people and indeed with customers but i think that responsibility is, is shared uh, i genuinely think that the firms need to improve how um we make it easier we have also we respond i think the, the interesting part here is if you disclose how does the firm respond because mm -hmm. if they don't the barriers will go back up why, why, why would i disclose and why would i choose to tell you a very personal thing about me. So I, I think the responsibility is on both sides um, and, and will vary depending on the circumstance. So I think, um, Helen, you raised a really good point around um, telephony and, and people using a phone. I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic. But if we think about another piece of technology that's coming out more and more that's inclusive is biometric design. So the ability to ID yourself with your, your voice. People need to know it's there, need to know it's available, but it is something for everybody, regardless of whether they've got diminished cognitive ability that's impairing their ability to remember where they used their cash point card last week versus I just want to do get hold of my bank really quickly because I'm a very busy person who's got five minutes and I don't want to have to remember pin numbers so it, 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 it's irrelevant whether they're vulnerable but having that inclusive design is, is very important. I mean that that sounds great but Jim Fernley a lot of, lot of firms in the work that we do with the Money Advice Trust say to us well if people just told us um, we'd, we'd respond. Martin's saying you need to create the conditions. Mm. Helen's talking about universal design so people don't have to dis uh, disclose or if they do, it's, it's far easier for a, a communication channel of their preference. But doesn't it boil down to individuals have responsibilities as consumers to inform their, their, their firms and financial service provider? I mean, I think we've got to answer that question in the environment in which we're in, within the wider environment. And, you know... Levels of trust are not exceedingly high at the moment overall in the general population with the banking industry, I think it's fair to say. And within that, vulnerable people, certainly from our experience of working um, with people with cancer, um, it's, it's both a, an issue of trust and it's also an issue of the concerns that people have, the untested concerns that they might have about what happens when they disclose. And it's that, that, that isn't only about, oh, well, there might be a lack of specialist support, but actually 
a genuine concern that it will, things will actually go worse for them, that they'll be charged more for products. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be realistic about, about the base that we're starting from, if you like. Having said that, um, we did some research back in 2014. Disclosure levels were incredibly low, about 5%. And when we came back and looked at that again last year, they'd, they'd more than doubled to 11 And I think that is probably a knock-on, actually, of the work that we've been doing. So, Helen, do you think that maybe I'm being naive here? Maybe maybe we should just recognise that individual consumers in vulnerable situations have enough to deal with, let alone showing a responsibility to a large, profit-making, multinational company? I think you have a point there. And I think uh, responsibility is tricky language because it implies that those who don't tell their bank about their mental health problem, which is sensitive personal health information are not taking responsibility for their mental health or the consequences of it or not acting in a responsible way. And actually, so I think there's two issues here. One is this is very sensitive information and some people will not feel comfortable sharing it with a bank. So, and I think that needs to be fine. And we need to accept that if you receive a diagnosis of bipolar, you may never wish to tell your financial service provider. And perhaps what you can expect from your financial service provider in terms of support is reduced as a result of that. That may be the inevitable consequence of not being able to communicate it or not wanting to communicate it with the firm. But it doesn't mean that you've neglected your responsibility. And then there is the second point that Martin was making that actually if we want individual customers to be able to call up firms, to be able to communicate about their needs and about the challenges that they might be facing, there is something that firms need to do to reduce the barriers, both reducing the barriers to sharing that information, but also improving the response. We hear time and time again from people who have called their bank, who have told them about their mental health problem, and who have had a shockingly poor response, whether that is somebody who on the phone who just doesn't understand, who's and who are as a result often puts people through, uh, they might put them on hold, put them through to someone else, get them to repeat their story again, ask them questions that appear kind of ignorant or upsetting. Um, And so it's no wonder that then people don't disclose for a second time to their other financial service providers. So it's tricky. I think it's fair to say that customers should expect a good response and may be able to get more support when they do share. Um, but I don't want us to be putting too much onus on people who, as you say, are dealing with often life-altering conditions and circumstances, so have quite a lot on their plate already. Okay, we've got some of the fundamentals there in terms of the parameters which you might start to begin thinking about responsibility on behalf of the firm, on behalf of the individual. So let's explore these in a little bit more detail. So, Martin, let's just keep going a little bit on disclosure. We've, we've heard a lot of consumer groups call for existing technology to be used by firms to identify consumers in vulnerable situations from spending behaviour or transactional detail. So this disclosure isn't required or it provides another means of identification of these consumers. Um, how is that sitting at Lloyd's? How far away are we from a technology like that? So the technology to proactively identify and engage with consumers based upon how they're interacting with their bank. If we think about the data we have and the ability to mine that data, we mine that data for a variety of reasons already. I think the difference is, is that shifting it from a reactive basis, so please may I borrow some money from you, let's check your data, to... We're not even you're not even knowing we're looking through the data that you hold with us, but we're going to approach you about your circumstances and potentially make a 
an assumption because I, I think we we view uh, there's kind of three three pots. It's, it's not not scientific at all, but you have those people that put their hand up and say I'm I'm vulnerable. Please help me. Most important people to deal with first of all. And I think we talked a lot about disclosure and reacting appropriately. The next part R is where you see data or behaviour. And you, you must always confirm that. You must always interact and say, to the, is, we, we think this is that is that situation. And then you've got the other ones, the, the ones in the other pot, which is that you're never going to know until they move along into pots two or pots one. And I think the, the interesting bit around the behaviour is if we have uh, a phone call, a telephone call or uh, a face-to-face -face interaction, the ability to confirm your, your, your concerns or, or you kind of close that assumption down is easier. Training your colleagues, making them aware. So if you've got long pauses, the confusion or uh, their speech or the, what you're seeing on their bank account, actually saying to them, is there any more we can help you with? So that's not easy, but it's easier. I think the danger is we then have a huge subset of customers that don't interact with us any longer on a run on a regular basis, uh, two on a face-to-face -face or even on the phone. We, we are a uh, becoming a, a, and as a whole industry a much more digitally uh, engaged audience and only at certain points where you can turn around and say i need to speak to a human at a bank and i think that being that makes those moments incredibly powerful but it also means that when you don't have that interaction we're really having to challenge ourselves to say how do you make that step without us making an assumption that could actually degrade that relationship you have with someone and again you may only have part of an overall picture and and you kind of then start building up multiple barriers which then you start to think oh is it is it an insurmountable challenge to go and approach these people and it can't be but i think we are fun certainly saying with my organization having the discussions about how could we and how is it's quite tough so others can come in on that but just to go back a step a step backwards there's an anticipatory element to all of this and it taps in a little bit to the universal design elements that Helen was talking about. It also taps into the Equality Act and kind of requiring kind of some thought about kind of what people with different conditions have. So the risk, getting the response right is absolutely incredibly important. What, what about that anticipatory element? So, so I think the interesting part we, we are able to do from that data is help it inform what we should do as an organisation on, on a almost a, a macro level. So not individually with, for example, yourself, Chris. Your data may indicate that you are in a vulnerable situation. Do we assume that uh, Chris is and we say, Chris, we think you're in this circumstances? Or do we go, actually, we've got X thousands of Chris's that are starting to tap on the door and actually we need to think about how we design a product, how we design a service. That's much more of a fundamental. It's more of a... Um, a, a softer approach so actually everybody will see it everybody will see the change but it being driven by data that we've we've accumulated as opposed to saying we think you chris need x it'll be everybody here is x let's now offer this as a, as a process design which makes a lot of sense and I, I sense others want to come in here but just to push you a bit further on that we know with large organizations it takes a long time sometimes to introduce change legacy systems, committees. You'll be familiar, I'm sure, with them, Martin. So Chris here might need help tomorrow rather than requiring help in a year's time, 18 months when the product design is, is through. It's, is, is there something that could be done to speed this up or to...? I, I, th I think that's just a big problem. I think there's a big challenge. Problem is probably too strong a word, but I think it's a, it's a big challenge because you are then... Uh, how do you change your overall operational model uh, and reverse on that stuff. So, so we are a reactive organisation in a number of different channels that we operate. 
it, it is it, it, this is where it comes back to it's, it's your money you're you're kind of using us as a service in which to to interact and if we start to block that change that slow that down we've got to be really clear and really careful that we are doing it for the right reasons and we know and no is a big difference from we think um and that, that's that that is a, again come back to it these are challenges they're not mm. they're not again they're not insurmountable as they were may have been a couple of years back we've got to think differently but i think if, if we can draw the parallels with scams so you may assume that somebody is maybe vulnerable to a scam thinking about how we do pre-entative controls without stopping every single payment that leaves that person's account that might be for the really good reasons and actually might be totally viable so i think there's there is always a balance and act um and but i think utilizing that data utilizing that insight to then drive that broader design is is the way to go at the moment so I think um, that's great and it'd really, be really useful to be using that insight to drive product design. I think, so two challenges on that for me. One is fraud detection. It's the obvious example, but we're doing it now. So firms have got very good at um, analysing customers' data live, spotting changes in people's patterns of behaviour that might be indicative of fraud and reaching out in an immediate sense to limit that harm. And I think one of the key differences between fraud and doing it for another circumstance such as spending in a manic episode of bipolar isn't the evidence base to spot the spending because we can build that. It's the stigma around is this the responsibility of the customer? So in fraud, you know that somebody else is carrying out or you suspect that somebody else is carrying out the spending. Therefore, if you reach out to the customer and offer help, you trust they're going to engage with it positively because you are not blaming them for what's happening. You're reaching out with an offer of help and support. Well, it should be much the same for someone in a manic episode that we make no judgment about the fact that this spending is happening and we offer support in order to help somebody manage it. The tricky bit, as Chris identified, is how. But that's a problem to work on and it's something that I think we can overcome, particularly if we can move away from thinking about firms using data to diagnose or spot the causes of problems. Really what we should be doing is thinking about using data to identify additional needs and giving people the help they need to overcome those. So what you can see in somebody's data is not bipolar disorder. What you can see is rapidly changing, escalating spending that is deviating from their normal behaviour. And the response that you would give them is not a diagnosis. It wouldn't be treatment for their bipolar disorder. So you don't really need to engage with them about that. What you would offer them is support in response to the change in their spending behaviour. So you might offer them some controls and some limits that they could put in place on their own account in order to control their spending in an episode of mania. And it might be that they can only engage with that further down the line when they're in a better place and put it in place for the future. I think there are times and circumstances when engaging with the cause of somebody's additional needs is important. But there are also times when we that's a distraction and actually th worrying too much about can you really put a label on somebody from looking at their transaction data is scary for customers, understandably. Um, scary for firms because it's difficult territory to be getting into and a bit of a time-consuming distraction. Martin, do you want to come back on that? In terms of response, I would kind of agree. But, but I think some of the uh, how we do some of that stuff it is the tough part, and how you build for all the various things that we talk about. So, so manic spending is a is a is an example, and there are a multitude of other things that we will see. And 
it's how do we build uh, I think this is a challenge for us and other firms is the uh, we spot X how do we respond Y both uh, individually so as a customer as we see a customer and help those colleagues on the front line simplify it down and I think we always want to avoid the the roller deck of right I've seen X right is it a, a to Z which one is it I've got to go to is it procedure number 100 pieces 100, 200 or where do I go but I think there are and, and we are starting to see, again, not just within my organisation, but across the industry, that almost the green shoots of that's coming through, which is that individual response that's built upon the data that you've seen. But I, I think we are on a starting there. Um, I don't, certainly don't think we're finished. I think we've got um, enough, and probably the audience for this podcast will recognise in their, their own stage that it, it, we've got to go and we've got to try these things. And I think the other big difference here is we've got to go and try it. Because we talk about a lot about we, uh, oh, that's tough. Oh, that's a real challenge. Um, but we might try it. Again, we, we set up the, the, the cancer support service. That's quite a bold thing to do, which is set up a service for a condition that people will contact us about. It's difficult. It's horrible. We've got colleagues on the front line who may be going through it themselves. And we always, the other, the other thing about the, the whole of this is we forget sometimes that people have their messy lives that work for us. Mm. And they've, they've got to go through it and they're potentially going to have to deal with it. How do we help those colleagues deal with their own life at the same time as dealing with other people's lives um, and that was bold to go and turn around and say train people up on what stage one to four means and if mm. someone says I have this particular condition they understand it but it's been really good and actually we've recognised the colleagues have really found it uh, very rewarding uh, not not an easy paper round by any stretch of the imagination if all you're doing is dealing with uh, people that are going through cancer or bereavements or power attorneys that's, that's, a, that's a tough day job but it was be bold, and I think we've learned from that as well. That's a really interesting dimension, um, looking after staff, and maybe it's something we can come back to at the end. But just to push you a bit there, Helen, on um, normalising, you know, taking the stigma and the sting out of the engagement, not making it about bipolar disorder or whatever is going on, but actually making it about the, um, the spending patterns. Now, that works maybe for things um, such as these erratic spending patterns, but what if somebody's got 100 transactions for uh, gambling? There's no getting away with the fact that they're at William Hill or Malta Offshore. How might we destigmatize those types of conversations in the same way? It's difficult. And I think there are some things that financial service providers can do. But there is a wider movement around destigmatizing mental health. There has been a wider conversation about encouraging a general acceptance that mental health problems are not the fault or responsibility of the individual person, that it's something that affects one in four of us right now, half of us across our lifetime. And so within the context of that wider narrative, I hope that it's becoming easier for financial service providers to also think about how they destigmatize those conversations between their staff members as well as between staff and customers, whether that's a conversation about a diagnosis or whether that's a conversation about a need that might result from a diagnosis where you don't even need to get into the details. Gambling is really difficult because we haven't had that same narrative and we're in a situation where gambling behaviour is still seen largely as the fault and responsibility of the individual who's doing it, even though we accept that it is an addiction. So, yes, it'd be great to see more work happening uh, within firms to think really creatively about how do you have a conversation with someone about those transactions. And I'd suggest a really great place to start would be to go and engage with the gambling charities and directly with people with gambling addictions and talk to them about how they would like to be spoken to in those circumstances and how they might respond. But it does also need to be part of that wider movement. 
So the, the responsibilities that can be placed upon firms come in waves in the same way that we're talking about these things within society. Banks don't sit outside of society. So when things are stigmatised uh, and difficult to raise, customers may then take offence because that's usually the big fear you hear from firms and particularly from staff because it can say in a policy about engaging a customer in a conversation about their vulnerable situation. But actually it's a frontline member of staff who usually has to do that. And that can often say, well, actually, I'm really worried about causing offence or failing my quality assurance programme or it going to complaints. So these are, these are things that can be tackled one at a time. I think it's less the responsibilities that come in waves and more firms' ability to act and respond to those responsibilities. And actually, it's important not to... Not to think that this is an entirely new thing that we're throwing at firms. People have had mental health problems for forever and banks have been dealing with it. It's just that a lot of it has been in the past more face to face. And what we're doing is shifting some of that into online, shifting it into telephony. And hopefully we're getting better and better at it. But whenever somebody takes out a joint bank account, a firm has a responsibility to think about abusive relationships, to think about coercion, to think about whether this is a financial relationship where they might need to intervene and provide some additional help and support. And banks have been doing that for a very long time. So this is really just about applying those same transferable skills about understanding complex lives and needs and having sensitive conversations to different circumstances and to products that are provided through different platforms. Lovely. Jim, um, might changes in product design or disclosure processes also help people living with cancer? Absolutely. And I mean, certainly in the experience of the people that approach our guidance service, some of those solutions would be fairly straightforward. Um, there, there, aren't, there isn't the same kind of complexities, perhaps, that we're talking about in relation to the range of mental health conditions, for example. Other than insurance, the, our biggest sort of problem area is mortgages. And they fall into a fairly sort of predictable set of issues, really. Um, interestingly, quite a lot of people who contact us do so pretty early on in the process. They've just had a diagnosis. They're aware that this is going, you know, they're going to have to stop work for treatment or they're going to have to cut their working hours. So they're, they're looking for forbearance. So in terms of how you deal with that in a truly preemptive way. And I, I, I want to stress that sort of my vision of what preemptive is kind of precedes the interaction at the point of difficulty. And that's that's the crucial bit about product design, really, is looking at means by which you can actually build in forbearance options as a possibility at the point, you know, they are, they are there in black and white. All the things that are in the source books about what you should do if someone's in financial difficulty are actually put in there as potential issues to discuss and work through at the point if it so arises that someone encounters a problem and is at risk of falling into debt. So that may be a slightly simplistic view, and I'm sure it is, in terms of how you negotiate and design that in the real world. But actually, there's some fairly clear things that you could build in to say, if somebody approaches me in X situation, then these are the options that, that, that we're authorised to, to talk about. These are the things that we can authorise. So it's, 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 it's transparency. It's having those options there. It's, as Martin's saying, uh, test and learn. So putting these things into place and it's co-production. It, it's doing this alongside those experts with lived, lived experience and professional experience. Let's let's consider our last scenario before we, we move on, which is product information. And this is open to everyone to come in. It's, it's often argued that firms will have a far greater knowledge of financial products than any individual consumer. So the balance of responsibility is, is immediately kind of towards the firm uh, to explain the options open to that customer, to talk them through. Now, 
is that is that the case? Do we do we agree with that? It's kind of it's simply uh, simple information. The way forward on this, how would it be built into product design, or do consumers again need help from wider bodies to increase the understanding of their financial capability and wider resilience? And I, I think there are two things here. I think there's a lot more that can be done about clarity of products. Um, and for example, um, a case study that we use, someone that we've worked with, um, as a case of somebody who, who had taken out a mortgage at the same time as taking out the mortgage, he was off an insurance policy. You know, perfectly capable person, if you like, by whatever definition you want to use. Um, he then had a diagnosis of cancer. He had thought that the insurance policy was a critical illness policy, and it wasn't. It was a life insurance policy. So he, he was then in a situation where he couldn't service his mortgage when he stopped working. Um, and we had a conversation about this, and he said, "If you know, all I would have needed at that point is just a clear set of bullet points about what this policy does and what it excludes, and I wouldn't have fallen into that." So I think I think that's that's sort of fairly straightforward, really. Um, I mean, the other thing in terms of kind of promoting capability, um, you know, enabling people to understand products better, I think there's a role both from public bodies, so the Money Advice Service, which is, you know, morphing into the single financial guidance body, but that shouldn't actually detract from the responsibility on, on firms to be just to be clearer, much clearer at the front end. OK, let, let's move forward. We, we've considered a number of different scenarios so far in relation to the different aspects of responsibility. So let's have a look at the uh, the future. Firstly, we know that the FCA are uh, running a consultation, it's coming up, on whether firms in the financial services sector should have a duty of care uh, towards their customers, including kind of minimum standards. The duty of care consultation is actually just closed um, and there's be a discussion around minimum standards from the new year onwards. Jim, can you explain what duty of care means to those who might not be familiar with the term? And will it have a significant change if it goes ahead in terms of the balance of responsibility? I mean, it's it's something that people struggle with. They say, well, you know, what does this term mean? And I think a lot of the things that we've touched on today are kind of composite, you know, there's a composite which a duty of care is. And essentially it's about, it is about a shift in culture, but that's something which can be affected in quite real and practical terms. Essentially, it's about putting putting the customer at, at the centre, at, at the centre of the of, of the business. And so, um, I mean, it touches very much on product design, business approach, clarity of what you're offering, which we've talked about, um, learning and development, and having sufficiently trained staff to deal, you know, with the, the range of customers' needs. And, and and evaluating the impact of all of that. So really it's a thread which runs through a business's entire practice, which really follows the customer journey from the point of someone deciding that they want something to engaging with it, looking at it, buying it. Then if something goes wrong, how they can negotiate perhaps changes or adjustments to that. But isn't that already there? We have treating customers fairly. We have an occasional paper on vulnerable consumers. Some people would argue, well, that's, that thread already exists. There are things scattered throughout the regulatory framework about customers' best interests, for example. And I think the intention of treating customers fairly was, was a good one. Um, but I'm, you know, in, in our view, it's not something which has sufficient force, and there's a number of reasons for that. I think fair is quite a difficult and slippery concept sometimes to get one's head round. And some firms choose to interpret fairness as meaning essentially that they'll pretty much treat everybody the same, which I think goes against the spirit of everything that we're talking about. So it doesn't it doesn't act in support of a view of the customer as an individual. Certainly that doesn't seem to have been the experience. 
And equally, when it's been forced against as a principle, it tends to be high-scale, kind of cross-industry, which actually suggests, I mean, obviously there are, you know, the payment protection insurance stuff, you know, there are the big stories, if you like. But that suggests that it's not encouraging a preemptive approach. It's used as a retrospective tool, if you like, to correct bad practice. What it isn't doing is putting into people's minds the avoidance of harm. And that really is the crucial thing, the crucial reason why we're calling for a duty of care to be much more explicit. If we're talking about consumer protection, protection against what? Against harm. Mm -hmm. And I think that really has to be stressed. Helen, where where do you stand on a duty of care? Jim is pointing there towards um, perhaps a legal duty, but... Wouldn't a minimum set of standards on vulnerability work equally well? So I think the duty of care debate is complex in two ways. One, in trying to grapple with all of the different things that people want from a duty of care. And secondly, in trying to understand how we might get those. And one option is a legal duty. Um, Another would be to change some of the principles that frame the FCA's wider work. But that's a kind of a complex debate, but I think where we all agree is in some of the shifts that were identified that would be useful to see in terms of the outcomes for customers and the responsibilities that firms have. And the two in particular that I'm really interested in is one is an understanding and anticipation of harm over time, which means that a firm is responsible for um, minimising harm to a customer, not just at the point where they're taking out a product or using it right now, but also thinking about when you're designing a product if you know that a quarter of the customers who are using this product are likely to experience a mental health problem right now, that's half of them over time. How can you make sure that the design of this product is minimising harm over that longer period of time? And the second is about being more proactive in terms of redress. So if a firm identifies that they have been mis-selling a product, at the moment the responsibility lies on the individual person who's who's been missold that product to make a complaint in order to claim any kind of compensation. And there may be fines levelled at firms, but it means that at the moment the cost of acting badly is lower than the cost of acting in the right way. Whereas actually, if we identified these problems and then made a system that automatically compensated the people who had been sold an incorrect product, which is not technologically impossible, then all of a sudden the interests of the firm would be more in line with doing the right thing in the first place because they know they're going to hit a big financial penalty if they've done the wrong thing. So those are kind of the outcomes. And I think Minimum regulatory standards are part of this picture around minimum regulatory standards for people with mental health problems and making sure that we get some kind of consistency there. But I don't think it's everything that we want to see. And money and mental health are making a contribution to this initial debate around accessibility, which I guess will be part of these thinking about standards. Absolutely. So we are developing a set of accessibility standards for mental health in much the same way as you have standards for understanding how a customer with a visual impairment could be helped to access your service. Until now, it's not really been clear for firms because the evidence hasn't been out there and it hasn't been presented in a similar way. What, what should you do? If you've got customers with mental health problems, how do you make sure that they can access your services fairly? And that's things like making sure you don't just rely on telephones, making sure that people who struggle to remember pins and passwords have other ways into their accounts, uh, and making sure that your products in their kind of design and the way that they operate are just as accessible for someone who has depression, anxiety, bipolar, as they are for someone who has a visual impairment, who's deaf or who has no accessibility needs at all. 
But accessibility is one part of that picture. There's also around you know, issues about standards of service and the kinds of support and help that people get that goes beyond can you access and use a service and get a reasonable outcome and into uh, things around um, the overall care that a firm might offer to an individual customer, which I think does go a step beyond. Martin King, it's, where do you stand on the duty of care discussion? So I think it's, again, Helen, you said it's complex, it's broad, it's uh, There are many different uh, actors within the the whole wide debate. Uh, And I think what people want out of it is going to be very, very different. We already have a very, uh, very strong, certainly in the global sense, uh, regulatory framework. Um, We also have a number of big changes that have come into that framework in the last couple of years, such as the senior managers regime. Um, We've obviously are still kind of the the tail end of a banking crisis. It feels like it was only yesterday, but it's uh, kind of moving on. So I think there are a number of things that are still yet to have fully embedded in that, uh, that that kind of need to see their way through. And if I think think about um, certainly when we as a, as a firm think about the things that we've done under uh, our journey on vulnerability, three three years is kind of how long we've been on it for, and we have brought in a variety of different things. We've trained ninety thousand hours. Uh, of of provide 90,000 hours of training we put in place a cancer support service uh, and those things have been delivered without a duty of care now that, what that doesn't mean is that nobody else sh- should have done it or could have done it or it, does it make a difference but I think there's also uh, firms are able to differentiate themselves by doing things better for customers um, and I think it's not I think I've, the, the level of collaboration I've seen across the industry is much higher in vun- in this world of vulnerability than ever but the differentiator will be on the the execution not on the design of a service. And I think that's the one of the key things we, we've kind of seen in the last couple of years. Um, and I think you'll continue to see the, the industry and, and firms in general, certainly uh, speaking about myself, is, is what where should we go and what should we do? So the introduction of minimum standards. Where How do you move uh, good practice to expected practice? And, and where do you move aspiration down to expectation is actually very, very helpful because that's when you start to rise it. But again, a, a, a duty of care doesn't necessarily do that at the same time. But uh, I think uh, also reflecting on it would be new to have um, minimum standards for mental. That's new. That's, it's, it's fresh. And I think we are starting to see that across a number of bits. And that's going to take many years to, to come in at the same time as a, against the backdrop of lots of other things going on and a banking industry that's going through a big fundamental change. Can I just come in quickly on that, this issue of how do you measure how well a firm is doing, which I think, again, is a critical one and something that we need to look at going forward, is, is around outcomes. It's actually what, you know, what, what is an effective outcome? Well, I, th- I think an effective outcome is ultimately did the customer get the remedy that they needed to deal with the situation in which they were in? And I do feel that's something missing from the current outcomes framework. It's not looking at things from from the customer's perspective. Penultimate question, so we'll keep this one very brief. Um, Are we thinking about uh, responsibility in the wrong way when it comes to digital? So is there, should we be thinking about the consumer getting benefit from taking more control or responsibility of their options and safeguards, so things like spending blocks, limits, or third-party access? Or is this just a, a weasel-word way of actually shifting more responsibility onto the consumer and uh, taking it away from the commercial firm? I'll, I'll come in first. I guess it's it can't just be one avenue. So it must be a multitude of avenues. So there are people who actually, yes, giving people the responsibility to make their choices. Brilliant. That's, and it should be about self-choices. It's their banking. It is their accounts. 
when there are other circumstances that diminish that they need support, then we should be there as, a, as an industry to support them. Helen? Um, I mean, I agree. It has to be both. It has to be both. It's also not that new. So we're using technology to facilitate customers to better do things that they were doing before. So while before customers were taking cash out at the start of the week and that was their budget for the week in order to control their spending if they were struggling using their cards... Now what we're creating is cards that can have spending blocks built into them to reduce the risk that a customer might lose their cash, have it stolen, or find that that system is too weak and actually they, it doesn't stop them spending in the same way that a harder block on their card might. So it's not necessarily that new. It's a new solution to something that we were doing before. And as before, it has to come with firms taking some responsibility to proactively help customers rather than instead of. Lovely. Okay, so last last question. Where is the uh, the debate around the responsibility uh, burden, be it on the consumer or on the firm, going to go in the next year? I think it's going to continue to be complex and vibrant. Very pithy. Jim Fernley. I would second that. <laughs> complex and vibrant. Sounds like my dating profile. Helen. I think we are going to have to revisit some of the fundamental ethical questions that have been shaping this debate for a long time because I think as the technology changes, the questions we need to ask are changing and we need some answers to things that we don't have yet in order to be able to move forward. Lovely. And we, we look forward to Helen Undy being the, uh, the host of future Vulnerability Academy podcast. <laughs> that note. Um, so with that thought, thank you, everybody. We've reached the end, sadly. This has been a debate which has taken us from the Devil's Dictionary to the FCA Handbook and around the issues of disclosure, information and support through innovation, regulation and possibly even law. So in doing this and listening to the podcast, you may have reached your own different conclusions about where the balance of responsibility lies. So do let us know what you think through the Vulnerability Academy portal or via Twitter at Chris underscore Fitch. Until then, it only leaves me to thank our guests, Helen Undy, Martin King and Jim Fernley. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. And to wish everyone listening to the podcast and taking part in it in all the best in their work on vulnerability. Thank you. That was a Vulnerability Academy podcast brought to you by UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. For more information, visit ukfinance.org.uk and moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. Produced by the podcast company.